Well, amen. Thank you, James and Choir and Orchestra Band. And y'all excited to be here? Say yes. And let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. And as you open that up, I want to begin by asking you a very simple question this morning. I want y'all to be uh, honest with me today. So how many of you are down for honesty in church? Yes. So here's the uh, question for you. How many of you actually experienced some type of worry this past week? Would you slip your hand up real quick and uh, hold it up high and keep it up? Now look around at all the sinners in the church. Y'all looking there? Good night. Everybody seems to be worried. Yeah, somebody, you started pointing, I saw you. But anyway, so... Uh, it's interesting, you know, the worry is a sin. It's what the Bible teaches. And uh, you, you know as well as I do that oftentimes anxiety begins to uh, take root in our thought processes. And whenever anxiety takes root in our thought processes, it gives birth to panic, to fear, and to worry. And oftentimes we worry about the things that are in the future. And that worry can be moderate. That worry can also be extremely severe. And so you and I know, according to Luke chapter 12, that the disciples were experiencing some worry. They were worried, first of all, about what was going to happen to them whenever they stood for Jesus. Remember, Jesus was experiencing some hostile treatment, and they knew that if they stood up for Jesus, they would leave the in crowd, so to speak, the religious elite, and they would step out and go against the establishment. And as a result, they would receive some of the same persecution. And so Jesus teaches them that they are to rest in the Holy Spirit and trust the Holy Spirit to give them everything that they need to say in the hour in which they are questioned. So we talked about that worry or that fear last week, that worry about how we can really stand for Jesus whenever we are afraid of others. But we also this morning are going to begin to look because apparently the disciples began to worry about how they were going to make a living. So you got to think about it for just a moment. Most of these disciples had left their everyday profession. So some of them left their fishermen's nets some of them left their tax collecting booths and now they were following Jesus. So these men who are used to providing began to realize that they're not making any money now. So as they followed the Lord Jesus, they were beginning to question and have fear over the future. How are they going to take care of themselves? How are they going to provide food? How are they going to provide shelter? How are they also going to provide for themselves something to wear? And so they became worried. And Jesus speaks directly to worry this morning in Luke chapter 12. And really the bottom line, uh, which really hits the nerve of what Jesus teaches us about worry life, Lives is that we as followers of Jesus should not worry. And so literally as we read Luke chapter 12 in just a moment, you're going to see the word worry several times mentioned over and over again. And this morning with God's help, we're going to teach you as well as myself as I'm learning with you how to live a worry-free life. So down with worry and up with bolder faith. And we're going to talk about how to do that. Y'all down with it? Say yes. So we want to come over and get over worry. So look in your Bible, Luke chapter 12 beginning in verse 13. And uh, stand with me in honor of God's word, 13 all the way through 32. A lot of verses, but I want you to check it out here. Uh, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware. And be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you ever talk to yourself like that by the way? 
Uh, soul, this is pretty interesting. You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your eat or your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you'll eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? And then notice the statement, you men of little, what's your Bible say? Faith. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Now help us to grow in our faith, applying biblical principles to our everyday life, so that we live walking in peace, understanding that you're sovereign and in control of all things. God, I pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. And uh, speak through me what you desire to speak this morning from the text so that the body might be edified. It might grow up into maturity. Also, Lord, I pray for those who don't know you personally. Some who are here today, they don't have a relationship with you. They've died now, they go to hell. And they need grace. So I pray you make grace uh, not only apparent to them and available, but God, I pray that it will be overwhelming to them. And they would respond to you in faith, trusting you. And so God, do a great work this morning, and we'll give you glory for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. So you can be seated. So we're going to talk about how to live a worry-free life, how to have bolder faith. And, you know, our society, the current culture in which you and I live, actually teaches us that we are defined by what we own. But here's the principle that Jesus teaches us from this text of Scripture. And I want you to see it, first of all. Your life is not defined by how much money you possess, your life is not defined by how much money you possess. Does anybody want to say amen to that, by the way? Amen. Look at verse 13, if you will. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to a man who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you. And then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Now, remember last week, Luke chapter 12, he begins Luke chapter 12 with a warning. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now he introduces to you and I another place that we need to be very cautious of. He says, beware of every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, the major word there that really leaps off the page is the word greed. And the word greed speaks of an insatiable desire for more and more stuff. It's a gimme attitude that wants more and is never satisfied. It is a person who continues to compare what they have with others, and, uh, and literally, they're always trying to keep up or they're trying to one-up their neighbor. You know, you've been into the uh, market before or the grocery store and seen the little kids where they're shouting out, can I have this, can I have that, can I have this? Have y'all seen this? Say yes. Help me out. I'm not up here by myself. Yeah, you've seen that, right? Well, listen, it's all right when they're like three and four. But when you are a grown adult 
You shouldn't be living with the same attitude. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your attitude should not be driven by greed. You know, it was the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who once said, with the absence of God growing in Western culture, we could replace God with money. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche was wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about that. You only need to take a look at popular media and you quickly realize how our current society glamorizes and glorifies money. Unfortunately, for those who are not controlled by the Spirit of God, they can become quickly controlled by money or by possessions. And the root of the problem is not the dollar bill itself. The root of the problem is the heart of the person holding the dollar bill. Greed and covetousness lead our emotions to be consumed with getting more. And Jesus said, watch out for that kind of attitude. Don't be that way. Beware. And I love what he says. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In other words, he's like, even if you do have a lot, that does not define you. read a book written by Timothy Keller entitled Counterfeit Gods. And in that particular book, he speaks directly concerning the statement that Jesus made. Let me give you the quote because this is good. He says, to consist of your possessions is to be defined by what you own or consume. The term describes a personal identity based on money. It refers to people who, if they lose their wealth, do not have a self left. For their personal worth is based on their financial worth. Yet even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. They are in denial. Money is one of the most common counterfeit gods there is. And when it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lust, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. You know, Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy saying this, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now look at the preacher eyeball to eyeball. Some of you as followers of Jesus Christ, have been duped by the culture thinking that your life is defined by cash. And as a result, you are living your everyday life trying your hardest to get more. And just as Paul said to Timothy, he says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it, it gives the idea literally of a man who is stretching themselves out for more, seeking to draw it back in, pulling it into themselves, and they're driven by greed. Paul says to Timothy, when you live this way, you wander away from the faith and you actually drag yourself to the bottom of the sea of grief. So some of you this morning, that's what you're doing. You're living that way. There's this void in your life. There's this emptiness in your life. And so you're saying, okay, I've got to get more. I've got to have bigger things. I've got to get this, get that. So that's your desire. And you're leaning out towards that. And the entire time, you are living a worry-filled life. And that opposes faith altogether. Now notice for just a moment, Jesus teaches his disciples that their life is not defined by what they own. So really the question would be, so what should drive the disciples' life? If it isn't a desire for more, what should drive us? That gives me the second statement for you this morning. Your life should be driven by generosity toward others. Generosity. Notice the parable of Jesus again in verse 16. You've got it there, say yes. And that was like eight of you. You got it there? Say yes. Thank you. It's third time preaching this same sermon, man. Y'all help me out, brother. And he told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. 
He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, the man Jesus speaks of in this particular text is entirely self-centered. He is driven by his greed. And when he prospered, he did not once think of others, but essentially said, what am I going to do with all of this money? Now, incidentally, if you're thinking to yourself right now, I wish that I, I had that kind of a problem, you may very well be driven by greed. The man in Jesus' parable spoke to himself. He didn't speak to God. He thought more income meant bigger barns, meant more stuff. The man felt that he was satisfied with life, and he was ready to enjoy his wealth for the rest of his days. The only problem is he didn't have days. He had one night. And the point is quite simple. The man who lives to accumulate and get more never thinks about the fact that he will one day stand before the Lord and give an account. And that's how some of you are. You are not in the faith yet. You do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. So you are living by the world's system and the world's standards and the world's uh, viewpoint. And so you are thinking, okay, I've got this void in my life. I have this craving in my life. So I'm going to go out here, get a better job, make some more money, build some bigger houses, have some more vehicles. Let me get this. Let me get You're seeking relationships, all sorts of things. You're trying to fill up this void, this craving in your life that you cannot fill with temporary things. God has given you an eternal void in your heart so you would long for him. So that's what we seek for. Now Jesus states here that the man is not rich toward God. And this is why. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It speaks of acknowledging that everything you possess and everything I possess actually was given to us by the Lord. Therefore, we should live in such a manner to make every effort to see where God wants his gifts to put you to use. There's no doubt that our finances can be enjoyed, but we must not allow ourselves to become stingy. So we've got to live with open hands, receiving and giving. You know, I was talking with Krista. They're doing a Bible study on Sunday nights, and she said that this is exactly what they were talking about recently, that they were to live their lives with their hands open to receive blessings from God, but also quickly seeking to give, to be generous toward other people. Now listen to Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. This is out of the message paraphrase, but this is an awesome verse. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. You know, we as a church staff just finished reading a book entitled Today Matters by John Maxwell. And in that book, he talks about generosity specifically. And here's a quote from the book, which I absolutely love. He says, giving to others naturally changes a person's focus, particularly if that giving is habitual. In fact, generosity can be described very simply as changing one's focus from self to others. And when you are occupied with generosity, it drives away selfishness. You know, as we are generous toward others, we are living in such a way to allow God's blessings to flow through us and minister to the lives of other people. Now, here's a great proverb. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Proverbs chapter 19 and 17 says, One who is gracious to the poor man lends to the Lord. Did y'all hear this? When you and I are gracious to those who are in need, we are lending to the Lord. And somebody's like, well, that dude can't pay back. The verse goes on. 
and the Lord will repay him for his good deeds. That's a good verse. So as you give and lend to those who are in need, the Bible promises us that God will take care of you. And look, and I want you to listen closely. Now, for some of you, especially those who are not in the faith yet, you don't know Jesus Christ, one day the Lord is going to call for your soul. And so you one day will stand before God. And God is not impressed with everything you got. So he's not going to be like, wow, you, I didn't know you had that big old house. Didn't understand you hit all those cars. You ha- How many jobs did you, what race? Man, that's amazing. God's not that way. God doesn't judge the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And so if you spent your whole life trying to feed that heart with things that are temporary, you'll spend eternity separated from God. But God graciously gave you Jesus Christ that you might be forgiven of your sin and that eternal void might be filled with the Son of God. So you can experience this. But you know, as a believer, some of you are followers of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, if today were your last day and you stood before the Lord, what would he see? A stingy person or a generous person? Are you holding on to things or are you freely seeking to bless other people? Now, as we think about finances, there's no doubt that that is the context of our verses of Scripture. So we should be generous in our finances. Paul the Apostle says we should take special attention to care for those who are of the household of faith. So when someone in the body of Concord is suffering financially, it makes great sense that the body would rise up and seek to help those individuals who are not doing well financially to take care of their needs. God may use you to actually take care of somebody else. Now, y'all still listening say yes? I knew I'd get no amens on that because I was talking about you giving away your money. But some of us are experiencing financial difficulty Not because of just random circumstances, but because you dug your own hole. (laughs) Y'all ain't out there. (laughs) And so now as a result, you're like, we need help. We need help. And listen, one of the greatest things that the church can give you is not more money that you can throw into a never-ending hole. Well, the greatest thing that the church can do is come alongside you and give you wisdom on how to handle finances. And we have people in the context of the body who are equipped and trained and actually look forward to helping people. Now, as we think about this, we need to be generous towards those who are in the household of faith. We need to be generous towards those who are outside the household of faith. But, you know, whenever we think of generosity, it not only has to have money involved with it. There are times in our life we not only can give wisdom concerning certain things, but we can give prayer You remember Job in the Old Testament, he was a righteous man, but he had everything taken from him. He lost his house, he lost his family, lost his job, so to speak, because all of his uh, sheep and everything were gone and his animals totally destroyed. He was sitting there on a heap of ash with all the sores and the boils in his life. And in that moment, what is amazing, I never thought about it before until this morning while I was looking over this again. In that moment, Job gave what he had. He gave prayer. The Bible says that he prayed for his friends, and then the Lord healed him. And so some of you may be in here, and you're like, you're talking about uh, being generous with finance. I don't even have none. Well, Job didn't either. So who can you give prayer for? Who can you lift up? You know, God may want you to be generous in your encouragement. There are people in the context of the body who are involved in ministry, and they become discouraged and heavy laden and downtrodden. They need somebody to come alongside them and pat them on the back and encourage them. Your Sunday school teacher. If you're not in Sunday school, you need to go to Sunday school. You're a Sunday school teacher. 
Every single Sunday is standing up and they are teaching a lesson to you. They are giving. And I know what you look like when you listen to teaching. Y'all all right? So they may become discouraged. You need to come alongside them, encourage them. Thank you for investing in my life. But we are to live not so that we can be defined by what we own or what we possess. You and I live in such a manner that we are being driven by generosity toward others. And here's the phenomenal thought. God is a generous God. And if we claim to follow a God who is a generous God, it only makes logical sense that we will be generous people. So our community should be overwhelmed with the generosity of Concord. Claremont should say, I've never seen such generous people. Claremont's pretty small. Y'all want to spread it out? (laughs) White County, Hall County, never seen so many generous people down there. Makes us stand out and look different. They'd be like, why in the world are y'all so generous? Because God has been so generous to us. That's why we're generous. Now, these are principles, and as I wrote these down this past week, I try to put myself in the sandals of the disciples, and I'm like, these are good truths, but... uh, How's this really work? How's this going to help me with my anxiety and worry? These disciples are concerned. How are we going to take care of things in the future? How's this going to work? Now, here's where Jesus begins to teach about the character and the nature of God. And he wants you and I this morning to understand some things. And as we put these principles into practice, we can live worry-free and be bold in our faith, trusting in the Lord. So here's a few things that you need to trust about God. You need to first trust the fact that God owns you. God owns you. Listen to verse 22 in your Bible, and this is awesome. He said to his disciples, for this reason, I said to you, don't worry about your life as to what you'll eat, nor for your body as to what you'll put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So Jesus is basically saying here, life has a lot more to do with it than just eating. Your body has more to do with it than just covering it up with material. Jesus then encourages us to think about a couple of things. Verse 24 in your Bible, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds? Now, you and I are more valuable than birds. We're created in the image of God. The Bible teaches we are recreated by God's grace. See, although we are born with the image of God, that image is marred because of sin. But God made a way for sin to be removed by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross for us, be buried and resurrected. And when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And that image is restored. We are remade. We are new creations. And the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, let me give you a statement. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Because this is huge. If God provided forgiveness for our sins through the blood of his only son, what makes us think that he would not take care of our needs for clothing, food, and shelter? If God gave you the greatest thing from heaven, he bankrupt heaven by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest. So, of course, he's going to meet these lesser needs. He met the greatest. And that's the truth that Jesus here is putting out. But I want you to know that you are owned by the Lord. The Bible says in Acts 20 and 28, God's church was purchased by his blood. Peter tells us that you were not bought with silver or gold, but you were actually bought by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the scripture also says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He's like, look at the birds of the air, man. Check them out. God cares for them. How much more important are you than a bunch of birds? Verse 25 and 26. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? So Jesus here was teaching a marvelous truth about worry. Worry is completely and utterly senseless. It changes nothing. And the word for hour literally means a cubit. 
It is a uh, literally uh, around 18 inches. So you got to imagine for just a moment. Are y'all with me? Put this in your mind's imagination. You draw a timeline of your life. So here's your birth and here's your death. So sorry about your death. Here it is. Jesus says, whenever you worry, it's not like you can add any length to your life. Worry amounts to nothing. That's what Jesus is getting at. You know, Dwight Pentecost once said it this way, quote, A man may shorten his days by worrying, but he certainly cannot lengthen his days. And then he gives another example here. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. That is, they don't grow weary or tired or exhausted. They don't create themselves. But I tell you, not even Solomon. This is one of the most magnificent kings the world has ever known. Not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. In verse 28, if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? Now, let me ask you a question. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Look at me eyeball to eyeball. Let's be honest. Look at me. Have you ever been concerned or worried about what you was going to wear? Y'all look so spiritual. I asked you a question. Y'all ever been concerned about that before? I have. Last night, I was ironing this shirt. And I like to iron, so I iron my clothes for the most part. Krista's a good ironer, but uh, she puts summer creases in a lot of my clothes. Some are here, some are there. So I... <laughs> I like to iron my own stuff. <laughs> so anyway, I was ironing this shirt yesterday. Last night, actually. And while I was ironing this shirt, I remembered something about this shirt. Same shirt I got on right now? Wore it Thursday of this week. Y'all listen? It's past Thursday. I had this on. So I started thinking to myself, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's like the resurrection shirt this morning. Y'all listen? <laughs> it's alive. And it stinketh. But anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> So I was ironing the shirt, and then I began to think to myself, and I know y'all don't do this because y'all are more spiritual than me, but I started thinking, who saw me on Thursday? Because <laughs> I know what's going to happen on Sunday morning. They're going to see me, and they're going to think, this is the only shirt I got, and they're going to feel sorry for me. Isn't that amazing? So here I am. But the bottom line was I was almost finished ironing it, so I sure wasn't going to go get another shirt. Y'all listening? <laughs> so I just hung it up. But then I sat down and started looking over the message. I was like, here I am, fixing to preach on this tomorrow, and I'm worried about what I'm wearing Sunday morning. Now, some of y'all ain't worried at all, I can tell. Y'all all right? <laughs> I'll just wear it is. I'll just wear it in. <laughs> now, one commentator states it like this, and I want you to listen. He says, it's an indictment of our day that we spend so much time, money, and effort to dress ourselves. Lusting after costly, stylish clothes is sinful because it only, its only purpose is to feed our pride. The number of clothing stores we have today and the vast amounts of clothes we find in them is staggering. Many people have made a God out of fashion and shamelessly waste money on expensive clothes they will wear but a few times. Our words today are seldom for necessary clothing. If Jesus told, are y'all listening? Say yes, because this is where it gets good. If Jesus told those who had but one simple garment not to worry about their clothing, what would he say to us? So we don't worry about our clothes. That is a sin. We, God takes care of the flowers of the field, which have no eternal value. They're thrown in the fire. And you can imagine the grasses gathered together, the dry grass, and then thrown in the furnace. And the Lord's like, I took care and made sure that grass was grown, and all it's doing is going to the fire. How much more valuable are you? I own you, and I will take care of you. And that's the truth. But notice the indictment upon those who worried about these kinds of things at the end of verse 28. He says, you men of a little faith... Little faith. See, those who worry show the tiniest of assurance that God the Father knows their needs and will care for them. 
And if worry replaces faith in our heart, we are at odds with God and can't even please him. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 11 and 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So check this and listen closely. When you are worried, you are outside of the will of God and incapable of pleasing the Father. Worry is the opposite of faith. Jesus speaks of those who worry as having very little, very small confidence in God to meet their needs. Worry is the heartbeat of unbelief. To worry is to personally, you got to listen to this. To worry is to personally doubt, personally distrust, and become suspicious of God's capabilities to care for us. That's what worry is. Imagine the heartbreak of God to see his children worried about the petty things of life. You know, worry reveals a lack of faith. Trust in the fact that God owns you. But then let's go a step further. This is good. We need to trust in the fact that God knows what we need. This is omniscience of God. It's a theological term which describes an attribute whereby God knows all things as one simple and eternal act. So in one simple statement, God knows everything. Jesus speaks about God's omniscience in verse 29 and 30. Look at your Bible again. Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows what you need. This is awesome. The Father who is all-knowing surely knows what you need, and if the Father owns you and the Father knows your needs, will he not meet them? And here in this text of scripture, he says it there. He's like, all these things, this is what the nations of the world are going after. And literally what he's saying is, this is what unbelievers look like. They are controlled by anxiety. Unbelievers are controlled by worry. They are always pursuing more and more in accumulation, driven by greed. They don't know the Lord, so they don't know how to live. So they say, okay, this life is all there is, so let's pile it up, man. That's how they're living. But if you and I begin to live in a similar fashion, how are we being a light in a dark world? If you're in your workplace and everybody's all fretting over finances and job security and this and that and that, and they're all nervous about it and you fall right into the same boat, how are you any different? And Jesus is like, this is what the nations of the world, this is how they live. It's not how you act, you're saved. You're born again. So you should look different. Now, it's one thing for the Lord to know what we need. It's a whole another thing to say that God actually has the capabilities to meet the need. So he knows what you need, but here, here's the last little statement here. Trust in the fact that God has the ability to meet your need. This is the omnipotence of God, the attribute of God whereby he has all power to do what he desires to do. And then notice in your Bible, verse 31, seek his kingdom And all these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. That speaks of his rule, his dominion, his reign. And as you and I submit to who he is and we walk in line with his authority, we are trusting that God is sovereign. Are y'all listening? Say yes, because I'm trying to wrap this thing up because this is where it gets good. Y'all with me? Say yes. God, you own me. You bankrupt heaven so that I could know you and be your son. You own me. God, you know all things. You know what needs I have. You know what the future holds for me. You know it all. God, you have the supernatural capability to meet every need. Emphasis on need. Are y'all listening? To meet every need, not every greed, but every single need. Now, if I walk in light of that fact, God owns me. God knows my needs. He has the capability to meet them. If I walk in line with those truths, it will bear the spiritual fruit of peace in my life. Every single time. Are y'all listening? 
peace. And when you and I begin to walk in peace, then the world begins to notice something's real weird about those people. Verse 32, check it. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father uh, has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And this is a tender shepherd analogy here. And being overseas on several occasions, having the opportunity to see shepherds with their sheep, it's pretty cool to watch. They're out there on the field. you got the shepherd. He's got his little staff with him. And all the sheep just hanging out. Wherever that dude goes is exactly where the sheep go. And you know what he's doing? He's leading them to where water is so they have something to drink. The sheep don't seem to be fretting it. He leads them to shade so they can lay down and they can rest. The shepherd. And now I want you to listen. Y'all listening say yeah? Because this is pretty daggum slick right here. Psalm 23, y'all have heard it before. And I'll just begin and then you fill in the blank here. And I'm looking it up. I know what it says. But the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. What did you say? Shall not want. Did you hear what you just said? Jesus says, don't live your life driven by want, desire, greed. The Lord is your shepherd. Makes a difference. Amen? So here's my dare for you this week. Take these principles, take this text. Put the principles somewhere where you can see them. Put them on your mirror when you get ready in the morning. I don't put your stuff up yet. I ain't done. Look at me real quick. Everybody started moving like we was finished. I got 20 more minutes in me. Y'all all right? Take the points, put them on your mirror. Take the points, put them in your vehicle, wherever you want to put them, so that you can see them. Every single time. And here's the deal. Every one of you raised your hand when I said, have you worried this week? All of y'all were like, I have, I worried. So every single time you are challenged to worry or feel, be filled with anxiety, look at the principles, remind yourself of the truth of the text of Scripture, and watch how your faith will grow. Walk in peace, man. That's where it's at. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word.